settings. Every story has one. What's your favorite setting, location in a story or a film? Uh, Middle Earth? Uh, Narnia? Tatooine? Or how about this going back? A 1980s high school classroom. Breakfast Club? Now, my all-time favorite. And this, this film... Uh, set the stage for my teenage years. 1986, it was released. And the location is the Miramar Naval Station in San Diego. Top Gun, that's right. Dun, 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 dun. That's right, feel the need for speed. Uh, that movie was amazing, and that Miramar Naval Station was the perfect setting for the story. See, settings are the appropriate container for everything that happens in the story. Uh, it frames the story, you might say. Uh, this weekend, I had the opportunity to see the, the Lone Ranger film that came out this year. Now, I grew up on the black and white Lone Ranger story. It was one of my childhood favorites, and so I was excited to see this film. Uh, the uh, fictional Wild West town of Colby, Texas, where the story is set, is the perfect container for that story of a renegade Texas Ranger just imagine if the Lone Ranger story was set on the lawns of Downton Abbey in the Yorkshire countryside. It doesn't really fit, right? Well, why am I talking about literary settings? The reason is, is because this is the last, seri- the last sermon in a series about the settings, the locations in the nativity story. We are on the, in the final installment of a series called Christmas on Location, and through this Several week series, we have, we have noticed something about these locations. We can learn a great deal about the significance of Jesus' birth simply by paying attention to where they occurred. And through the previous sermons, we've discovered something very interesting. A Bible's story's setting is often symbolic. The story in the Bible, its, its location often is, is symbolic. The locations in the birth story of Jesus is as much about symbolic geography as it is physical geography. It's as, it's as much about the symbolism of the place as it is the actual substance or physicality of the place. I mean, consider what we've learned through this series about the nativity story. For example, Nazareth symbolized the humility of the Messiah and the universality of the salvation that that Messiah Lord was bringing. Jerusalem symbolized the central conflict that Jesus and the gospel brought against the earthly political and religious powers that were centered there in Jerusalem. And Bethlehem, among other things, we learned symbolizes the ultimate kingship of Jesus over this world. So here's my question here in this sermon. What makes these locations in in the narrative of Jesus' birth symbolic? The answer is that they are symbolic because the Jesus story is situated within the larger story of Israel of the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament. The The Jesus story, follow me here, is the aha moment, you might say, of Israel's story. 
It's that moment in, in a plot when the crisis reaches its climax and the plot's conflict begins to, to, to unfold its intended resolution. The, the Jesus story is, is, the, is the goal in the end of the whole of Israel's story that the Old Testament unfolds. And the, the locations in the birth narratives frame Jesus' story within that larger, grand story of God's work in the world since creation. And this is no truer than with this uh, place called Egypt that we are considering as our final location in the series. The story of Jesus' flight to Egypt is well known, but interestingly, among the Gospels, Matthew alone is the only one that tells us about the story. So for Matthew then... What would the place Egypt have recalled from that larger Israel story? What symbolism does Egypt have from that larger story of Israel? Or you might say, what Matthew's first audience, what thoughts and feelings would Egypt have conjured up within them? When they heard the syllables, Egypt, what kinds of bodily sensations would have happened to them just by the sound of that word? You see, what we're going to learn is that Egypt is not so much a question about where, like where is Egypt, but, but rather the question Egypt asks is a question of what. What does Egypt mean? What did it mean for Matthew and his audience? But, but more than importantly, what does it mean for us today? This, this sermon is essentially an invitation to visit the meaning of Egypt and through the words of Scripture, hear the voice of God calling us out of our Egypts to his fullness of life. Well, in order to refresh our memory about Egypt and Israel's relationship to Egypt in the Old Testament, I want to just give you a quick two-point review of Egypt in the Old Testament. This is going to be very brief and only scratches the surface, but we need to kind of get some background that we can bring into the story of Jesus' birth. Two points. The first is that Egypt, initially we discover in early part of Israel's story in the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament, is a place to run for refuge. We have a few stories of the patriarchs, the the fathers of the people of Israel. Uh, Abram being the first one. Abraham uh, was named Abram and his his name was changed by God. And he finds refuge in in the land of Egypt from famine in the promised land. Uh, Joseph, although uh, sold to slavery in Egypt, you might remember he was at the bottom of a pit uh, about to be killed by his brothers. And so the slavery to Egypt actually became a rescue of him. And of course, Joseph becomes this powerful second in command in Egypt and invites then his father, Jacob, the, the father of the nation of Israel, the people of God, to bring his family to Egypt during a time of famine. And that sets the stage for for what is certainly the most uh, well-known issue about Egypt in the Old Testament, and that is the the slavery, the 400 years of oppression of of God's people under a tyrannical pharaoh. It's a story of, of slavery and genocide 
And it's in this story that God sends this, this servant Moses to, to, to lead the people by the miraculous power of God out of Egypt to the land of promise. So this gives us a, a bit of a sense. It's a place, Egypt then, that sort of has this dual uh, sort of sense. It's a place to run for refuge, but it's also a place of slavery and oppression. Well, now back to the story of Jesus' flight to Egypt, and we want to, again, sort of work at this symbolic geography, because what we're going to discover is that Egypt is a land of deep, deep symbolism, deep symbolism. If you have a Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 2. That's where the story of Jesus' travels to Egypt is told. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, we'll consider right now. If you don't have a Bible, the text is on the screen as you can see it. And of course, I should have mentioned that there's a program with the outline of the sermon uh, for your convenience. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, quote, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now notice that Matthew appears completely disinterested in Egypt as a physical location. We only have the briefest of references about the journey there. I mean, there's no mention of what would have been a 10-day trek through about 200 miles of treacherously beautiful desert scenery. We have no specific reference of exactly where in Egypt the Holy Family resided during this time. And Matthew tells us little about how long they actually were there. When Matthew tells his readers that Jesus was taken to Egypt for safety, it seems as if it's for the purpose of telling the quotation from Scripture that we looked at in 2.15. Out of Egypt I called my son. And notice that the quotation is not even about going to Egypt. It's about departing from Egypt. And so it seems that, the, that Matthew is wanting to point us not to the, to the residents in Egypt, but to the fact that Jesus was called out of Egypt. And that then looks forward to verses 19 through 21, where we're told that, in fact, Jesus does leave Egypt in fulfillment of that quotation. So look at 19 uh, to verse 21. After Herod died, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream uh, to Joseph in Egypt. And said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went back to the land of Israel. The quotation there in verse 215 is taken, as I've said, from Hosea, the 8th century prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. We won't spend much time at all on that passage except to take notice of one very important observation. Matthew applies a text that in its original context was meant for a corporate people. He applies this corporate statement to the person of Jesus. Let me say that again because it's so important. 
Matthew applies what in its original setting was applied to the people of Israel to Jesus. What Matthew is doing here is he is intentionally retelling the story of Jesus to engage that Israel story. Jesus, the Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Matthew calls him in chapter 1, verse 23 of Matthew. The Emmanuel is entering. He's living. He's fulfilling the story of Israel right before our eyes in the narrative. With this brief story of Jesus' flight to Egypt, with its center focus on this quotation from Hosea, Matthew draws the whole sweep of Israel's story into this moment. The whole sweep of Israel's story, the story of the Old Testament, which is a story of of slavery to freedom to slavery again. Because as as the story closes in the Old Testament, the people of God are again enslaved by foreign powers because of their unfaithfulness. And so what Matthew is doing, it's quite literarily remarkable, actually. He's telling us that the story of Jesus is the story of God's final, climactic deliverance of his people. But more specifically, what Jesus' flight to Egypt symbolizes, and for that matter, what the birth narratives as a whole symbolize is that this deliverance, this final climactic deliverance of God is not from above. He's not dropping it down in deliverance. He's actually entering into the story. He's he's going below and within our stories. The Apostle Paul in Galatians puts this beautifully. Galatians 4, 4. He says, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. The symbolism of this story of Egypt is that God enters the story. The author becomes the protagonist of his own narrative. In Egypt, Jesus, God's son, is at one with the suffering of his people. Let this thought Sit with you for a moment. There is a a marvelous irony in this story. I mean, splendid. Jesus, the rescuer of all humanity, the one we claim to be the deliverer who is coming, himself needs to be delivered. The deliverer is in need of deliverance. How should we think about this element of the Jesus story? It's, it doesn't exactly jive with many of our assumptions about Jesus, frankly. But the story of the flight of Egypt, the one that Matthew tells us because God inspired him to tell us it, is meant to shape the way we think about Jesus. So what difference, if any at all, should this story make about our understanding of God? Well, as I see it, this story gives us a glimpse of the nature of God's love because nothing else would explain it. How, other than God's radical 
love, can we explain why God, perfect, holy other, independent, has no need of us, would identify with the suffering, with the vulnerability, with the fragility, with the weakness of human experience. It's God's love that caused him to enter into the story of suffering with his people. Now, immediately, we run into some theological problems there. How can this perfect, complete, holy, independent God suffer? Well, that might be our problem, but it it actually isn't God's problem. But we do need to ask ourselves, the view of God that we have, the one that we carry, the one that shapes the way we live, is it a God who is capable of suffering and grief? A God who is so connected to our story that he suffers and grieves with us and for us? Or... Is the God that shapes our living, is it a God who is untouched by suffering? Sort of up there in a complacent blessedness in heaven. Sort of his arms crossed, totally unaware, disconnected from what's really going on here. How do you see him? In your view of God, is he he a dispassionate father? An absent, disconnected parent? Well, until recently, this view of a disconnected God was effectively my view of God. Now, I underscore effectively because until recently, I didn't realize that I had been carrying around two opposing views of God here. One intellectual and one in my body. One that I thought and one that I actually lived in my reactions to my life. In my intellect, I knew that God feels and grieves. Why? Because Jesus, the very image of God, wept. At the grave of Lazarus, his friend, he wept. And if, if as the New Testament teaches that when we look at the face of God, Jesus, we see the face of God, then in that moment, I'm to take away that God himself grieves. But here's the problem. It's all well and good in your head, but until recently, I never personalized this. I never asked or thought whether or not that God in Jesus wept and weeps for me. And such a thought has never, never been a controlling image in my nearly four decades of a life of faith. Now, I'm not talking about God's grief over my unfaithfulness or or the grief of of a disappointed father sort of wagging his head at the failures of a son. No, I'm talking about the grief that God had when he looked at his people under the tyranny of 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 a tyrant inflicting death. And when he looked, he said, according to Exodus 2.25, I see, I know. It's a God who enters into the grief. He's a God who entered and a God who enters into the way in which evil has harmed me. The way my enemy, 
the enemy of all, all of our souls. We have an enemy, you know. The way he studied me, the way he took notice of things about me that really only few people even know. My, my adventurous spirit, my, my passionate heart, my, my awkwardness. Those of you that know me know I'm awkward. <laughs> it's true. But these, these are, are unique elements of the dignity, the, 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 the image of God in me. And my enemy, your enemy, studied me and figured out that, that God had a unique redemptive design for me and he went after me, just like he goes after you. And like Pharaoh in Egypt, who studied the Jews to figure out how he could, he could kill them, the evil one noticed where I was most vulnerable and went after me with death. And through various means, too many to name here, the evil one brought me to a place where I began to feel complicit in the evil. I began to think that the evil was, was my fault. He cut me down with shame. He reduced my humanity and he killed me. And until only recently, I never imagined, never imagined that God grieves over that. I never imagined that God grieves over the broken home that shattered and sent me into a tailspin as a preteen. I never imagined that God until recently, grieved over the years of sexual abuse that was, that was conducted by a stepbrother who saw this, this, uh, this adventurous, passionate boy who was looking to be fathered. I never imagined that God grieved over that, that he grieved over the, the, the innocence lost, that he grieved over the way in which the evil one had broken and bent me. The way... In fact, God does grieve. And consequently, in my own experience, I have struggled to grieve with people in their sorrow as God does. The truth is, honest truth is, I did not even know that I was allowed to grieve. I didn't know I was supposed to grieve. I had never been given the permission to grieve. Somewhere along the way, in my late teens, I came to this view that what I was supposed to do with that suffering was, was get over it, put it in, in my past, uh, see it as a classroom to learn something about the world and God. I thought of it as something that I could use for God's purposes in the world. And by the way, all those things are true. But I never approached those things with grief. No, I became heroic I became like the maverick in the aforementioned Top Gun movie. A hero doesn't have time to grieve. There's too much to accomplish, you know. An accomplishment, at least at the time, to me, was a much better friend than grief. Let's be honest. I mean, what does grief get you after all? Where does grief get you after all? And this way in the world, by the way, don't let anyone tell you different, is amazingly effective. I mean, I've accomplished a whole host of things that I'm very proud of. But there's one problem, and it is significant. And the problem is that this kind of way in the world does not foster intimacy in relationships, neither with people or with God. 
And this was the very thing that marked our image in which we were created by God. You see, heroes are terrible friends. You don't want a hero as a friend. But in my process of discipleship in the last sort of year or so, I have grown tired of the hero image. And I've become curious about my disconnected and absent way of relating. I've stopped chalking it up to my personality. Come on, you've done that. And I've begun to question some of these deep contradictions in my life, like... Why is it that I don't feel grief or emotional connection, but man, on a dime, I can burst out in emotional rage? I mean, why is that? Emotional rage is emotional. It's feeling-based. So there's a contradiction there. I don't feel sorrow, but I feel rage. I got curious about that. And in the process of discipleship, I have begun to imagine a life full of feeling. To be in this world so in touch that at a moment I could be either laughing or crying. Now, frankly, I used to, I used to uh, you know, have contempt for people like that. I, I was so cynical of people that were on the emotional edge. But you know what? Now, it's my deepest longing and my, and my, my, my greatest prayer that I would be so human that that I feel that deeply. Because that's, that's, friends, is the place of fullness of life as God intended it. Egypt symbolizes God's grief-generated, grief-inspired mercy. That's what it symbolizes, a grief-inspired mercy. The kind of mercy only generated when, out of love and an engagement at a, at a deep level with the suffering of another. You see, God's mercy, his grace, is not a principle. It's not an abstraction. It's not just an attribute we talk about or think about. It is actually an action provoked by love and, and in the process of encountering another's suffering. Just looking at the world, if God, in fact, is love, then he has to be able to suffer. Because true love can only but suffer and grieve in the face of trauma. Now, what does this look like? <laughs> I mean, what would it look like for you and for me to, to have this perspective of God and to live differently? Well, I can tell you better what it doesn't look like. Not a very good expert on what it looks like, but I am a great expert on what it doesn't look like. And it doesn't look like the answer I gave to my Christian therapist in one of the early sessions when I was sharing with him my, my story of abuse. Uh, it wasn't like the answer I gave to a question he asked, which was a great question. His question was this. He said, Joel... If your son Zion, I have a son named Zion who's six years old, he said, if your son Zion went through the same things you did, the, 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 uh, the broken home, the sexual abuse, how would you respond to him? So I paused, I reflected, and I answered something like this. I said, I would tell him that this is just the way the world is. And you've got to accept it. You've got to embrace it. It is a sinful, brutal, 
terrible place. But it is the place where God is rescuing sinners. It is the place where God is unleashing Christians into the world. And we need to get ourselves up and keep moving. God will teach him something from this that God can use for God's purposes. Can you, can anyone see what is wrong with that response? Immediately when it came out of my mouth, I knew it was warped. If in fact I were to act that way, I would perhaps be telling the truth. Everything I said there is true. But I wouldn't be a person. I wouldn't be personal. And it might be something, but it would not be love. Because what love does is it it picks up the child in the trauma, coddles the child, loves the child, and blesses that child, assuring them that the father will walk with him through this. That's what God does for us. But see, my childhood trauma had cut me in half emotionally and warped my view of God. Because in such a response, if it is, an appro- if it is inappropriate in the context of a human father-son relationship, it is infinitely more inappropriate when it comes to God. And that's what this story of Egypt symbolizes. God's mercy is one from within generated by grief. And it's his mercy, as, it, as he's in that moment with us, that invites us to the moments of our greatest shame to see that in fact, this is amazing, by the way, Jesus is there. He's in Egypt. He's there to hold us. He's there to say, I am bearing this with you. The story of Egypt and Jesus' flight there teaches us that God has experienced, bore, and triumphed ultimately over evil by the cross and the resurrection. Praise be to him. But it also, and for our purposes, I want to stress this, it also, in the meantime, until that final day, it also teaches us that God enters into the story of our suffering and grieves with us leading us to places of fullness of life. You see, the story of Egypt and Jesus' flight there is is an invitation to encounter this grace in that place. There's another important aspect to the symbolic geography that leads us to our next points There's a relationship between the physical places in story and the symbolism of the place. So it's important that we know a little bit about the the Egyptian topography, the Egyptian geography. Geographically, Egypt is a place of stark contrasts, even contradictions. It It is a place of both desert and oasis. Egypt is a land of desert and oasis. Uh, Egypt is situated in the northeast corner of the continent of Africa. 
Uh, it's, it's connected to the Sahara Desert. Uh, the only reason uh, there's any life in Egypt is because there is this Nile River that runs right through the heart of it, giving a fertile land to just the banks of its shores. You see, every year, the Nile River overflows, and the silt out of the Nile uh, makes that land fertile. But 95% of Egypt is desert it's made of rock and, and sand. Only 5% is actually uh, habitable, is, is able to sustain life. In size, Egypt is, is enormous. It's, it's sort of um, on par with, with the state of Texas. And it, just as a bit of comparison, uh, Israel, the land of Israel, is often large in our minds, but in, in geography terms, it's actually quite small. Uh, Israel is the size only of, of New Jersey, my, my great home state. Um, Egypt is, is a vast place of mostly desert with just a little bit of oasis. It is a place where death and life are very real realities. I mean, you go out on a jog in the Sahara, you may not come back. And what is so interesting is that this physical geography is symbolized in the very experience of the people of God in Egypt. Because for Israel, Egypt has been a place in its memory of, of deep ambiguity and ambivalence. Egypt is a place that one and the same time draws a sense of security and safety, while at the same time brings out a, a, a feeling of terror I mean, Egypt represents for Israel both freedom and respite and rescue and refuge, but it also represents the greatest example of oppression ever recorded in any book, not just the Bible. 400 years of slavery, brutal slavery. And it's, it's, it's to this ambiguous place of 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 death and life, that God sends Jesus for rescue. Now, Israel is more dangerous at the moment, for sure. There's a, there's a tyrannical king in Israel trying to kill Jesus. But, but Egypt is not a vacation. It's a hazardous geography. In fact, we know just a handful of years after Jesus' death on the cross in 38 A.D., there was the first recorded Jewish holocaust in Egypt in a city called Alexandria. So in the life of Jesus, going to Egypt was not a safe place to flee. But that's where God took Jesus. This, uh, this sort of ambiguity, I think, is probably a lot of the reason why it's clear that it is not the place of God's best for Anyone. It's not the geography of identity. Egypt is not the land of promise. In fact, the only reason it seems that Jesus goes there is so that God can draw him out of there. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. The promised land is somewhere else. It's not in Egypt. But as the story goes, occasionally God took his people, even his son, to a place like Egypt of an ambiguity of slavery and refuge for a time. But it was never to be the place where God's people drew their identity. 
Now, as I was thinking, and I'm thinking about this ambiguity of, of Egypt, I see in my own life of faith the reflection of that ambiguity. I've come to see that for years, I've been living in this kind of ambiguity in the Egyptian geography of, of, of life and death, of refuge and enslavement. And many of you probably can reflect and feel that too. We've settled into these Egyptian geographies that were only ever meant to be the briefest of respite. And in these geographies, we have found sinister kindnesses in a sin-marred world. Kindnesses nonetheless, but sinister kindnesses. Drink, sexuality, approval-seeking, pursuit of achievement, these, these habits, these, these sins, these ways of relating to people, the strategies to control our environments, to protect ourselves. These are things we fall back on time and time and time again. They have become indispensable friends for survival. Some of us have been so deeply wounded by the evil one. We've stumbled into these geographies of Egypt just to survive. And survive we have. And in God's providence, he's allowed them. But hear me, hear me. These are not our home. These are not the places of identity. These are dangerous geographies. And we would never, in our devout frame of mind, in an ideal world, ever go there ourselves. But we find ourselves there. But you know what? <laughs> Again, this is, the, this is so amazing. Guess who's there? Jesus is in this geography of Egypt, this place of ambiguity, and his presence transforms it. Because in this geography, Jesus' presence helps us see that these, these uh, sins that we've been leaning into for, for life, for survival, are actually uh, uh, sparks of divine identity. Yes, they are. Because in these, we see the desire of our hearts for something infinitely more full. But the problem is we get settled in these geographies. And what the story of Egypt teaches us is that Jesus comes here to invite us out of the Egyptian geography to the promised land, to the place of infinite fullness of life, to the place of a restored humanity, to a place of intimacy with God and with others. This is one of the things that I've been doing in my life of recent days in discipleship. I have been studying my own Egyptian geography. Not long ago, I commented to a friend. I'm 42 years old, I told him. I've been a follower of Jesus 38 years, but I still have outbursts of anger that come out of nowhere. I'm severely disconnected emotionally from those I most love. And after three decades of white-knuckling it, I'm still struggling with sexual addiction. These are aspects of Joel Willits that do not reflect the fullness, the infinite fullness of God. And every time, every time they end in slavery, they are far less 
infinitely less than God's best. They're nowhere close to the promised land. These friends have become houses of slavery. In fact, Paul tells us in the letter to Romans that these are in fact evidences not of God's kindness but of his wrath in the present time, that we exchange his best for something far less. But when seen in the light of Jesus' presence, recognizing them as places where we have sought refuge, they become invitations to his fullness of life in the promised land. And so as the text comes to a close, it says, out of Egypt, out of Egypt, I call my son and daughter. We are not children of slaves. We are children of promise. That was our destiny. That is what God is doing in the gospel. I'm going to invite the bands at our campuses to come as I wrap this sermon up. And I just want you to hear clearly that this is an invitation. The symbolism of Egypt is an invitation to receive God's loving rescue to fullness of life. The gospel is for Christians. It's for me. And if you're a Christian this this morning, it's for you. And it's for non-Christians. And the gospel out of this text is that God is inviting us to leave these Egyptian places of ambiguity for his fullness. This place that can never deliver what it promises for God's place that will deliver infinitely more beyond our greatest imagination. So how do we get there? What does it take to get there? I have three suggestions for being perfect as I close. That was a joke. (laughs) I don't have suggestions on being perfect. But what I do have are suggestions that I think are the path towards this, this place of fullness. One is courage. It takes tremendous courage to admit that you're in Egypt in the first place. It takes courage to believe that God's best is better than what you're experiencing now. It takes courage to lean into the hope again, to imagine that life can be different than it is. It takes a willingness to surrender wholly and totally to Jesus, a willingness to actually receive this idea that he grieves with you and being willing to respond to that grieving God with trust. And finally, it takes investment, a tremendous amount of investment, particularly in a deep, long-term discipleship relationship. And so let me plug these things that were mentioned during the announcements, the the, uh, care night, um, uh, sermon series, and I would add community groups are spaces where you could find the opportunity to go after your geography, to study it, to discover God's invitation to something more. As we wrap up, I'd like to invite all of us at all four campuses to stand as we worship together one last song, Wonderful, Merciful Savior. And as we sing that, my prayer is that anew you might have a vision of God, of his grief-inspired love, and that you might find the hearing of an invitation to leave the geography of Egypt in your life for God's best.